Actually, uh, today, <laughs> you've heard that before. Hearing it in the car on the CD. What a blessing it is! Actually, it is. It is. It is a great. It is a great prayer. Uh, it is a wonderful. Uh, yeah, it is a great prayer. Yeah. This is the twenty. No, this is the fifteenth. 15th of September, and we are talking about Lesson 5 in Matthew, Part 1. I've written on the board here, uh, Torah. It is instruction, teaching. It is not the word law in English. It just isn't. It contains laws, but it is not the word law. Uh, I hope that is not news for you. Um, because if we, can, if we treat it as the word law, what we will begin to do by reading the English... Apostolic scriptures, what we will begin to do is to completely undo what God has said. In fact, what we will begin to do is establish a new law. Here's what it really means to people who mean that that way. It means we don't keep Jewish laws, we keep new Christian laws. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but that's exactly what it means. I would go further and say it has no relevance. Yeah. Well, the Jewish law has no relevance. But no, there are new laws. Oh, yes, I give you a new commandment. You see, we would say that's a, that's a new law. The problem that, and, and usually the theological offering that is given for it, and it's a, it's a considerable one, it's one that we should pause and consider, is that the law was given to achieve, yes, thank you, Charles Ryrie, there we go. Uh, the law was given to achieve acceptability to God. In other words, that we could approach God again. The law was given so that we could be acceptable to God. Absolutely not. If you read what God said when he gave it, that's not what he said. He intended us to live righteous lives. He gives the standard of righteousness. And you know something? The argument, the theological argument that says that, in fact, that's the reason why it was given, completely undoes itself when you get to what they would call the New Testament. Because they say, oh, no, we have new laws. These are harder. Okay, wait. I can't keep the ones that are easy. But you want me to keep the ones that are hard. And the reason I can't keep the ones that are easy is because they're too hard. But the ones that are hard, those are the ones you should keep. No, no. There are instructions within the apostolic scriptures, obviously everybody knows, is far outweighs 613, the traditional enumeration of commandments given in uh, the Tanakh, or in the, in the Torah specifically. But the word Torah does not mean specifically the first five books of the Bible. We consider it as one of the definitions, and it is, but the, the word Torah means instruction. So when David praises the instruction, the Torah of God, he is not in any way saying it's limited to the first five books, although that is his focus. Because his very instruction, his instructions are. But remember, no, do not add, Deuteronomy chapter 4, do not add, do not subtract. Are these new commandments? No, they are, they are rehearsed commandments. Elucidated commandments. Yeshua said, a new commandment I give to you. What is that commandment? That you love one another as I have loved you. That's a, that, talk about scaling the impossible cliff. It is only by the power that he gives us that we can do that. Is it is it a new commandment in the sense that you've never heard it before? No. The Torah teaches the same thing. And what we're going to look at today, what you've done in your homework, is, a, is, is, is given to us and as a focus upon this and keep the correct focus. Because we do not believe that we can achieve 
our own righteousness to be acceptable before God? Absolutely, categorically not. Does that mean that we are to live unrighteously? Absolutely. As equally, categorically, not. What is the relationship? And Yeshua's going to give it to us. Um, here's the, the verse I have at the top, uh, Genesis 49.10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, and a lawgiver... See, the English word lawgiver is really not a very good translation. A lawgiver from between his feet... Like as when Shiloh comes, or Shiloh comes. This is from the, the prophecies that Jacob offers to his sons, his twelve sons. And the logger, actually including his, uh, uh, yeah, twelve sons, excuse me. And a lawgiver is Um Chokek. And if you did Psalm 119 with us, you may recognize that's like Hok, or Chokim, or Chokot. Uh, these are often translated uh, ordinances or statutes in English okay? a lawgiver one who gives inscribed it comes from the word inscribed inscribed decrees I love that because the Torah the ten words specifically were inscribed on stone by Moses by the finger of God you know how funny that is you know most people think the second set Moses did I'm serious. You ask the question. Who did the stones? Well, God's finger wrote the first. That was what I saw in Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. (laughs) But the second set, that Moses carved them. Absolutely, categorically not. (laughs) God wrote them. The Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to the children of Israel. We've been looking at for the last few weeks how how, uh, Yeshua is King Messiah, how he's introduced as King Messiah. Last week we saw specifically how he's tempted to shortcut shortcut to become and be recognized as King Messiah and he uh, miraculously and and powerfully escapes the tempter and the way that he escapes the tempter is to specifically answer him from the Torah Um, we know that his ministry is about the end Matthew 27 and on about atonement resurrection eternal redemption we know that his ministry will end that way. What we fail oftentimes to do is to grasp what all of the chapters up to that are about. Because it doesn't seem to be much application until Paul tells us what it all means. And, you know, because Yeshua seems far too cryptic. People don't like his words. They're harsh words. Very harsh words. These chapters, these three chapters we're going to look at are very harsh words. Um, if you don't recognize instruction versus law um, Matthew 5 and 7 are what call, are called the Sermon on the Mount by many people <laughs> I don't mind that it doesn't bother me but honestly that's not what it is it's not a sermon at all I, I've seen lots of uh, Jesus movies that have him standing up and teaching sometimes sitting down uh, standing up and teaching as if it's a sermon and the only place you know I'm sorry the only place we can gather this many people is in the, out in the boondocks you know Otherwise, we'd be where we should be, you know, in a church, giving you a sermon from behind a pulpit. Uh, This is not a cultural thing. This is not just simply, oh, well, the culture, they couldn't fit all in, and so he didn't have to do it in the same way. That's just, that's that's not true at all. He sits down for a reason. It's not a sermon. What we, what we see, go to chapter, Matthew, chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2. Luke tells us that this occurs by the sea. On a plain by the sea. A flat place. Matthew tells us it's on a mountain. Which is right. 
Both of them are right. Uh, unless you go to the Sea of Galilee and go to where it is traditionally understood to be where he delivered his sermon and you say, I'm sorry, this can't be by the sea on a plane. If you, however, you will go down to the Sea of Galilee from there, the Kinneret from there, to the, where there is actually a, a, uh, the sower's, what's called the sower's cove, you'll find that both can be satisfied at the sower's cove. So yeah, oftentimes the traditional is just kind of silly. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Catherine, uh, Constantine's uh, mother, uh, basically she went around and found the most... I mean, she's creating a, a, a basically a Disneyland, a theme park for for pilgrims, and so she found the places that work the best for the theme park idea where you can get the most money. Uh, so a lot of the places over in the land of Israel are not the real places; they're basically made up for the purpose of theme park. Um, go to Matthew chapter five. If I'd stop making little comments while I'm Turn it, I'd probably do better. We move faster. You get get you better stuff then. Matthew chapter five, verse one. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and he was seated. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them. And, and we see in Luke that he actually has spent the night in prayer on the mountain. So this is this is the idea of the mountain. Actually, is is in both. He spent the night of prayer on the mountain. Uh, a lot of people, you know, are, are are not troubled by the idea that we're never told that he goes and prays by himself in another room. They don't, they don't ask that question. They just know he's always praying by himself somewhere. Interesting. You're saying you're talking about it's a sermon to the Palmadine. You know, he's reading and saying, when he saw the multitude, he went up and looked. Yeah, up that's right, yeah. But it doesn't, if you read it, it doesn't say that the multitude followed it. No, they didn't. Well, they may have been, but they were eavesdroppers, if that's the truth. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that was the point here on the outline. Yeah, yeah. The multitude goes with him, yeah. Uh, he's not trying to teach the multitude. He's just not. He's going to teach the multitude. How's he going to teach the multitude? How did you hear? His disciples taught you, didn't he? And that and that's the idea of discipleship. Now, what we see is him sitting down. The posture is important. The posture is very important. Uh, the posture of sitting down is one of intimacy. It's a family. That's why I'm sitting down. I'm more comfortable standing up and walking, pacing. I sit down for a reason. It's the posture of intimacy. It's the posture of we're here together as a family. It's the posture of a father with children at his feet teaching, right? That's the posture that's supposed to be here. This is the posture of a master teaching disciples, one of sitting down. Did that mean he never spoke standing up? Of course not. But when he taught his disciples, he often would sit down. Specifically, in this instance, we see the sitting down. And his teaching, then, is to be understood as a master teaching his disciples. Okay? Not as giving new instruction, but as a master teaching his disciples. He's going to explain what they already have heard. What we see in, in uh, um, oftentimes is the standing up is a position of authority. Right? Why does, if he's teaching authoritatively, which he is, but if that's his purpose, why is he sitting down? His authority extends to the disciples only. That's the reason why. It's like a family, right? Daddy's, daddy's in charge. When daddy says goes, daddy does not have to stand up, does he? No. But he's teaching as, 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 it, as it were a family. And that's the idea of discipleship, is family. It's, it's, a, it's a father, it's a mother teaching children. That's the, that's the picture we're being given. Go to Isaiah chapter... Uh, actually, let me, before we get there, uh, in these blessings, um, 
actually I did have a note here go to 729 uh, we see that the, the multitudes this is the very end of this this passage chapter 729 which we're going to look at in a few weeks 729 says um, uh, actually verse 28 and it was so that when Yeshua had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one having authority not as the scribes it is not what he teaches but how he teaches and what we have been often led to believe is that his teaching is is unique now I want to be careful saying that people get offended when you say Yeshua's teaching is not a unique in the first century they get offended because no he's he's the unique one is he not he is master of, of all how can he not have unique teaching and the reason that I say that it's not unique is not because it is not unique in the world it is unique in the world but it's been said before um, we have God speaking from the moment of creation and those who would teach that Yeshua is teaching a new teaching are trying to are trying to distance Yeshua from the one who spoke and the world came into being sadly that's not their intention but that's what they sadly do it's why Christians has wrongly been accused of having another God the problem is is it there is scripture in the New Testament that says he was there at the beginning. That's right. Absolutely. That so is he just, what, he saves some good stuff for later? No. It's always the same. His teaching is, is it's not new. It's ancient teaching. It's the way we should have always understood it from the beginning. It gives you, you know, it just gives you chills to think about. Yeah. Ancient teaching. We live in a modern world. The Western mind has always said the new is better. The new is not better. The ancient is best. <laughs> I think some of it too comes from the fact we're not familiar with. We are. The Talmud and. I mean, some of us who took David's class, he explained about the yes. and how it's laid out, and he's like, "Wow, says this, that's right." Says that, and sometimes what's the answer? Now, what's the answer? Yeah, I don't know what the answer is, and they don't care. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. That's a great point. And what we now argue like one. That is a great point. That's right. That's right. And what we have, and it, uh, it's very sad. I mean, it's not. To, it's not to completely endorse everything that's in the Talmud. But what you understand is, it's a Bible study. That's all it is. It's six hundred years of Bible study. That's right. Well, it's commentary, of course. But it's six hundred years of Bible study. It's everybody arguing over Scripture. How's that bad? <laughs> even if you don't like the conclusions. I think the contrast here is that even more so with that he was indeed yeah. you know, had the authority. He was yeah. speaking with authority. That's right. They did not have that authority. That, they didn't, they don't, That's why it's a Bible story commentary. That's right. Right, wrong, or has good information in it. But this is the truth. Different. It's, it's, it, yeah. it's different. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the point that we made in our, in our study here is he doesn't quote anybody else. He doesn't say, in the name of my master, which is what you read in the Talmud, my master taught me this, and his master taught him this, and his master taught him this. Everybody's, everybody's borrowing from someone else. That's great. And actually, we should, we should begin to practice that. Instead of coming up with new ideas, maybe we ought to say, you know something, I learned this from so-and-so. And, and Yeshua doesn't do that. And that's the remarkable thing when he gets chapter, into chapter 7. They're going, you know something, not once did he mention somebody else. Now, we don't have that recorded here, but we can know that that's, that's what happened. We know that's what happened. He's not quoting anyone else. Why do we know that? Who did he train under? Paul trained under Gamaliel. He wrote it. <laughs> Our master is a completely different master. He's completely unique in the sense that not what he's saying is new, 
But what that he's saying is the truth not got from someone else. There's no dispute over what he says. There's no people going, you know, but I understand it to be this way. I'm sorry. If you do that, you're wrong. <laughs> By the way, he did stand up there. It tells us he stood up. And why did he stand up? Because he's not elucidating on the Torah. He's reading it. That's the difference. And that's why the, the wooden pulpit, the bima, that's where it comes from. It comes from the days of Nehemiah and Ezra, where in fact they constructed, that's the coat, they constructed a, a bima, a wooden I wouldn't stand to read the scriptures from. That's the difference. Do you understand? When I stand, you might confuse my words for God's words. Not to, it's not wrong to stand. But do you understand the point? Do we need to be careful? Do we need to be careful that we don't mix our words with what God has said? I'm giving you commentary today. <laughs> You're really right. In Europe, it really became an issue. Because if you look at the old churches in Europe... That's pulpit like, oh, off the side, up high. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's true. And elaborate, and how basically those people were worshipping in the Catholic That's right. That's true. That's exactly right. And, and the reflection is that men... Men's words are valuable. They are valuable. But what really matters is God's words. Yes, Roseanne? Well, I was thinking in the synagogue as well as in Christian churches, we hear, I've heard, if it's important, the rabbi, the preacher will tell me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need to. My rabbi says, that's right. Yeah, that's right. And that, you know, that's, that's, isn't that wrong? It is wrong. It doesn't mean that we should discount the words of the wise because we should. We sh- shouldn't discount the words of the wise. We should consider the words of the wise. Absolutely. In light of the scripture. That's right. But it should always take us back to scripture, which is why the questions always are supposed to take us back to the scripture. Real quickly, because we don't have to go time through, through all of them. So, when, when Yeshua, beginning in verse 3, says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This back and forth, this parallelism, it's, it's totally Hebraic. It's straight out of, it came straight out of the idea. It's, it's, it's Hebrew poetry. Parallelism is Hebrew poetry. When he says the word blessed, the ashray, he means you to immediately draw upon something. Who are blessed? I hate the word happy in there. I'm sorry, I just do. The NIV think, I think puts happy. I just hate that. It's, it's actually, it's, accurate. it's accurate to say happy. It is. It's also translated happy. It is. It's, it's accurate to say happy. It's actually a better translation than blessed. But... I still hate it. And the reason why I hate it is because it seems that it's, it's, it's a light word. It's a frivolous word. Happy in English is a frivolous word. But, having said that, go real quickly to Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. This King Messiah, son of David, is in fact drawing upon the ashrays, the ashrays of Scripture. Because they're fu- the Psalms are full of them. Ashray. Ashray. Psalm 145 is another one we'll read here in a second. Blessed Ashray is the man who, not, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scorpion. But his delight is in the, English says law, right? How can you delight in law? I'm sorry, the only people that delight in law are those who want to punish other people. The instructions of the Lord. For 
in his instructions he meditates day and night he will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season its fruit is what? what is the fruit of a righteous life? righteous deeds that's it does that mean I'm perfect? <laughs> if you knew me you'd know that's not true at all <laughs> no but when you see righteousness when you see me do righteous things you can know it's because I was given righteous instruction that's it nothing more it's no credit to me. I just did what I was told. You know? Unfortunately, people get punished and they don't... You know, they rarely, rarely get rewarded for the right thing, right? People do what they're told. They obey the law. Somebody goes, by the way, you obeyed the law. Way to go. Just want to stop you and give you this ticket to tell you you did good. No. <laughs> but what reward do we have? If you do not believe that the righteous receive a reward, then you do not know the scriptures. He's coming and his reward is with him. Ashray, uh, if you were look, if you were to look and search through the Book of Psalms in Hebrew, English sometimes it doesn't come across as blessed. Look for the word Ashray. It's 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 a powerful worship and study experience. Uh, and Yeshua is drawing upon that. How is he drawing upon that? He's not saying this is the way into the kingdom. These are not requirements for entering the kingdom. In other words, unless you have, and this is the way that it's often given, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The idea that if I'm not poor in spirit, I cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. Usually this list of scriptures, this, this sermon, this beatitudes, blesseds, are given as, by the way, this is the, way that, this is the only way that you can approach God. Because I'm, I'm telling you that being poor in spirit is something that maybe some days I achieve, but not always. And what we begin to do is play this game. Well, I've achieved it. Uh, I've, I've achieved it through Yeshua, and actually, that is true. I've achieved it through Yeshua, but that's not. That, he's not giving entrance requirements. What he's giving you is a way to live. It is. You know, if you are poor in spirit, it's better. And in fact, yours is the kingdom of heaven. What do you have to look forward to if you're poor in spirit? Living with the King. You know, the poor in spirit will live with the king. Well, will there be that, those that are poor in spirit? No, everybody who lives with the king will be poor in spirit. But you may have had days prior to that that you weren't. Uh, what does poor in spirit mean? Uh, we actually did some, we did some cross-references there. We talked at Isaiah 66.2. It's defined as those who tremble at his word. Do you tremble at his word? Not making stuff up. Not saying my words... By the way, let me tell you what God really means here. Right? No. That, that's, that's not trembling at his word. Let God for it speak for himself. My commentary is just commentary. It doesn't really, you know... And, and the whole scheme of things doesn't matter one, one whit. It's a whole lot of waste of time, oftentimes. All, our, all of our questions are simply to draw us back to Scripture, are they not? Look at uh, um, those who mourn. I had you look up Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 3. Comforting those who mourn over their sin. Why is it that those who mourn will be comforted? If you've been looking at the comfort passages, the, the comfort uh, scriptures for the month of Elul, you saw repeatedly that it is because men repent that they receive comfort. So why does he say that here? Is repentance necessary for entrance into the kingdom? Absolutely. But you know something? It's better even if that's not the requirement for entrance into the kingdom. 
a repentant life is beneficial all by itself. Is it not? Go through each one of these. See, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse ten. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, straight. Why? <laughs> Boy, you know this is that this is that whole idea of oh, punish me and I feel better. No, that's not what he's saying. What is he saying? Because living a righteous life is valuable in and of itself. But when it says for righteousness is sake, it doesn't mean because I stood up and I defended my denomination. It doesn't mean because I stood up and defended whatever religion I may be a member of. That's not what it means. For righteousness sake means you're persecuted because you did the right thing. You, I can promise you, if you follow Yeshua, if you love Him, if He is your Master and your Redeemer, you have been and will be persecuted for doing his things that he's told you to do. You just will. It's part of life. Is it blessed? Absolutely. Why is it blessed? Because following him is worth it. And it reminds us how worth it it is. Right? Let's go to the uh, sanctified here. Go to Matthew chapter uh, 5, verse 13 through 16. 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world, and a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. His, his disciples, remember he's speaking to his disciples. And we, extend, we are extended through them to be his disciples if we follow him, right? You're the salt of the earth. And you won't lose your savor. He's not saying something. The Talmud makes a comment on this phrase. <laughs> and it's kind of funny. Because they say, can a salt lose its savor? <laughs> how, how silly. Does a mule have an afterbirth? And mules do not give birth. Uh, no, there is no, there is no, salt does not lose its savor. It does not lose its ability to preserve or to make sweet. And really, the, the, the salt was not used to, make, to, to preserve in the first century. Salt was used because it made it taste good. That's it. It's made it taste good. You are what makes the world livable. Taste good. We're there. We're we're in the midst of a people who are cynical and perishing, and we bring hope. What's the hope we bring? The words of our master. What does he say? He says, "Don't put your light under a basket." No one puts a light under a basket. That's silly. You are a light. He doesn't say, "Be a light." I want you to shine, y'all. <laughs> he does say, let your light so shine. But he's saying, so shine. In other words, you don't cover up something. It can't be covered. That's silly. Your purpose is to reveal the glory of God. How do you reveal the glory of God? It's worth following our master, is it not? It's worth, fo- it's worth living for him. I get persecuted. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's part of life. It's fine. I don't mind. It hurts. Oh, but, you know, it's nothing compared to what I get out of it. This is a, this is a, he's talking about life. That's why I talk about these, these beatitudes not as being entrance requirements, but as living. Living. With a view to the reward in the future, no question. He talks about the kingdom of heaven. It's a view towards the reward in the future, but that's not why we're doing it. A, ma- a servant who will work only for a reward is not a good servant. We're not working for a reward. We're working because it's worth it. It's not worth it in the hereafter only. You know, it's like, okay, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to finally get... Get what's coming to me. Uh, you know, I, I don't think you should think that way. That's a dangerous way to think. It is. I 
when I get to the heaven, I won't get what was coming to me. That actually is a dangerous way to think as well. But what we ought to be thinking is, I wish the Master was here now. I wish she was right here. I wish she was here teaching me all the time. But I know one thing for sure. In the world to come, in the Messianic age, he'll teach me all the time. I just want to be with him. Wherever he is, it doesn't matter. I just want to be with him. That, that's the correct attitude. That's what he's trying to convey to his disciples. It's about living his life now. Not so that we can live with him forever. Never. Never. Far be it from that. Um, Leviticus uh, chapter 2, he also draws from salt in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. He draws this, this idea that a sacrifice always must be salted. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, uh, but all, the sacrifice always had to be salted. It was called, it was called and, you know, a covenant of salt. Salt is what made it valid. Uh, many of things made it valid, but salt was the last thing made it valid. So salt is actually a sanctifier. Salt is a sanctifier. So we sanctify the world around us. We do. We bring his light into the world. Um, uh, in, 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 uh, in Hasidic uh, circles, it's known as Tikkun Olam. And we really do practice Tikkun Olam. We really do. I mean, it's whether we, whether we recognize it or not, we are repairing the world. Can we repair it? <laughs> of course not. But what we're doing is we're introducing God's instructions daily. By the lives that we live, we're introducing God's instructions, whether it be verbal or simply by the things that we do. We introduce God's instructions to the world. These are, in fact, this is, in fact, the way that God is repairing the world. Will it fix the world? No. Nothing will fix the world until the king comes and fixes the world. Right? But does it not preserve it and sanctify it? And the answer is yes. That's our purpose. We are purposed to bring his glory into the world. And it is done by by letting everyone know who it is that we follow, who it is that we obey, and how it is that we obey. Quickly, on the Torah and the prophets. Go to chapter 5, verse 17, and we're going to read through verse... Actually, I'm going to go through verse 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, the English choice of the word law there is done intentionally. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one... Uh, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Who's, whoever breaks, therefore breaks, one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now we're talking about entrance into the kingdom. Ooh, this is scary stuff. Is it not? Ought to be. You know, I would take these words, even if I did not believe like I believed, I would take these words and I would be very, very careful how I handled them. Unfortunately for us, we had a long history of people not handling them carefully at all. They completely undo what they say. Here's what is said. You know, the law, that's the Jewish stuff. The law is, is in fact, damaging to people. It teaches them they can achieve their own way to God. God never gave, he gave it simply so you know you can't achieve it. That's what's said. You can't achieve it. So he gave it. He gave you an impossible cliff to climb. So you can know that you need him. That makes God into a shyster. He's not. He's not a bait and switch. In fact, the apostolic scriptures tell us very specifically that it was not too difficult. It was not too difficult. To live sinlessly? Of course. But that's not what he's asking. He's asking, will you obey me? Do you, do, you, do you believe you have an obedient child if they obey you most of the time? Yes, you do. 
you're troubled by the fact that they disobey. Any disobedience is enough to keep us from God's presence. But any obedience pleases Him. And Yeshua covers the rest. <laughs> but the very purpose, the very purpose for the offerings in the tabernacle and the temple was so that the people could approach God because they had sin. So obviously the, the law and the commandments were not given, were not given so that they could achieve perfection. They were given so that men would live the way that God wanted them to live. That's all. And like we discussed, the apostolic scriptures, people call the New Testament, contains its own set, as some would see. I don't believe there's anything new. I think that's all repeat. But even if you were to say it's new, it contains its own set. And I can't achieve those either. I need grace regardless, don't I? Of course. Absolutely. Without grace, there is no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. What he's speaking of here is, what is often said is, do not think I came to destroy the law of the prophets. The Torah and the prophets is being said here. He didn't come to destroy the scriptures. He's talking about the Tanakh, all of it. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. The word fulfill, in this common theology, the word fulfill means to undo, annul, replace, undone. That's exactly the opposite of the first clause of that sentence. He says, I did not come to, to abolish, to annul. I came to fulfill. What's, met, what's missed oftentimes, and I gave you the Greek here, it's not a really big deal, but in verse uh, 18, the word fulfilled, uh, ginomahai, does not, mean, does not mean satisfied, or rather, that's what people say. Well, he fulfilled it all. I mean, you know, it said that he would, he would come and he would atone for sins, and he did that. Well, you know, that, that actually is not what it means. It is actually, when you follow this word and trace it back into the Hebrew, what it means is to make it stand up. He's here to tell you what it means. I did not come to undo it. I've come to tell you what it means. Wow. I now I ought to read this stuff and go, man, thank you. I ought to read this stuff and go, this is important. This is not commentary on the commandments. He's going to tell me exactly what God intended all along. Well, by the way, it's not new because these words that we see here, many of the sages of the first century did a very good job of explaining them exactly like Yeshua did. They did. If you were to, if you were to overlay the Sermon on the Mount, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, with Halil's teaching, you'd say, wow, Yeshua was a Halilite. Brad Young uh, uh, from uh, Oral Roberts, uh, noted scholar, has a new book called Meet the Rabbis, whereby he actually takes chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, and he overlays them with rabbinic teaching of the time. It's, remar- it's just remarkable. You read it and go, well, man, these guys already had it all figured out. Well, no, they hadn't. They were simply drawing the correct conclusions from the Torah. Of course, Yeshua has a better source. <laughs> Don't, don't let that discourage you from Yeshua's words. Don't think it's diminishing of his words. Now we have the authority. It's not one rabbi against another rabbi saying this is what it means. We, we can know what it means. And that's exactly the way that he goes through it. Um, what we see is he does not say it was written and so I say. That's what is oftentimes taught in this errant theology we're talking about that, repl- that where Yeshua's words replace scriptures. It is not a replacement. He doesn't say, by the way, you've read this. And I say to you, he does the opposite, doesn't he? You've heard that I say to you and then, he, and then oftentimes he uses it as written as well, doesn't he? Isn't that interesting? 
He doesn't say you have read it. He never says you've read it. Because if he had, and this is what was in your homework and actually here in the outline, if he had, the Deuteronomy chapter 13 says he should be stoned. You've read this. Listen, if I were to follow the common commentary, maybe even Ryrie, certainly R.C. Sproul, on this, on this chapter... Yeshua, according to Deuteronomy chapter 13, should have been stoned. He is not making the Torah lay down. He is making it stand up. Why? Because God's instructions are valuable and righteous. He wants us to obey Him. Is it the entrance into the kingdom? Of course not. However, He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, Scribes and Pharisees in verse 20. You will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. What righteousness can I achieve? This is not in any way to discount that when we do righteous things, we have righteous lives. We do. They are righteous deeds. Uh, chapter 19 of Revelation tells us the saints or those who are attending Yeshua are clothed at the feast of the Lamb are clothed in white, which are the righteous deeds of the saints. They are righteousness. However, is that, what we, is that what redeems us? Of course not. That's what we're clothed in. Is that what redeems us? No. What redeems us, in fact, is, in fact, grace. Yeshua only has redeemed us, right? And so, what we're talking about here is, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, it can't be your righteousness. It can't be your way of doing things. It just can't. It has to be His righteousness. Righteous lives are important. He judges wickedness. He judges righteousness. He rewards righteousness. But it is his righteousness that, re- that ultimately redeems us. Um, dividing God's word. This is in the summary. Dividing God's word into Old Testament, New Testament. Um, again, I'm, I'm not going to ever criticize people for saying those words because that's fine with me. It doesn't matter. I know what they mean. They don't mean anything derogatory by it, usually. But it is, it is in fact, it, is, it endangers the redemptive plan. Because it's not one, it's not two plans, it's one plan. There's not a, by the way, try and do this way. A couple thousand years later, sorry, missed it. I hope you all learned your lesson. Oh, thanks. I wish you told us in the beginning. No, Hebrews chapter 11 teaches God taught in the beginning. And from righteous Abel on, all believed and followed and trusted. Those who are redeemed were redeemed the same way. The same way, no difference. So we have, when you begin to split it, old and new, you begin to play this game of an old way and a new way. The new way replaces the old way. That's nonsense. It's always the same way. Yeshua is teaching a continuity of Scripture, not a division of Scripture. God's grace, uh, by God's grace, we have not been attached to a new way, but rather we have been grafted into the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, from he- Ephesians chapter 3, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge, Paul speaking, in the mystery of Messiah, in which in other ages was not made known to the sons of man, as it has been now revealed to the spirit of his of holy apostles and prophets that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs. The gospel was revealed to all, but nobody could figure out. But Gentiles too? <laughs> yes. The same way. Gentiles. The news is Gentiles can be attached in the same way. How? Through the promise of Messiah through the gospel. The good news is that Gentiles Gentiles can be part of the commonwealth of Israel. Let's, put, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that Yeshua taught authoritatively, that his words were words of life, that they were words that we can live by. We thank you that his life should be uh, given to us as a, re- as, as a reflection of your righteousness, that we should live righteous lives. We thank you that our failures and our sins, although they account and add up to your complete displeasure, You have dealt with them graciously.
in the sacrifice and atonement of our Master Yeshua. We thank you that he sits at your right hand and he will, retain, he will return to reign as king in Jerusalem, king of the universe. And we bless your name, in Yeshua's name. Amen.